This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. This week we have more television to talk about and a little bit of movies, which is a nice treat at this point in the release schedule. We'll talk about Abbott Elementary and a piece that Rebecca wrote, as well as the upcoming premiere of The Staircase. But first we have what I think is really just an A24 check-in. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk about Everything Everywhere All at Once again, um, which we got into previously. Um, and I'm still not sure, David and Rebecca, if you guys have seen it, so no spoilers. Um, but it's having this really tremendous box office run, um, you know, more than anybody expected. I think a couple weeks ago, I started seeing tweets that were like, it might be the fourth highest grossing A24 movie behind Uncut Gems. And now people think it might become the highest grossing A24 movie. It is dropping like nothing in the box office as it continues. It was number five this weekend. Um, It's made $35 million, which, and I think we talked about how great this movie is. And I think word of mouth is really powerful for this. Um, But I mean, do you guys think that those of us who want Michelle Yeoh to win an Oscar for this, is this box office uh, Cinderella run uh, mean we're not so crazy after all? Yeah, I think that it's certainly. <laughs> Thank I'm, you. I think it's just another check mark in the in the pro column for her. There's the mm-hmm. performance itself. There are the reviews for that performance. There's the fan love for that performance, and then there's the kind of actual. You know, it has yielding financial results, which is maybe all <laughs> the, the bottom line is maybe what people in the industry care about the most. Um, yeah. And I think it just means that it's sticky in people's heads. And we're still a long, long way from anything resembling a nomination. But, you know, I think Scott Mendelson pointed out that, like, that box office, it didn't drop at all. And it's, you know, he compared it to A Greatest Showman or A Sixth Sense, where just, which were these massive hits that just held and held and held and held and held, mm-hmm. um, even though I don't think Greatest Showman was ever number one at the box office but it made like $400 million worldwide. So I don't know if everything ever will get to that scale because it, it is a bit more of an inaccessible movie for some. But yeah, I, I think this movie's narrative is way bigger than anything I could have imagined for it. 
I think it actually increased. I'm looking at Box Office Mojo right now, and it's, it suggests it was a 2.2% increase over last weekend. Um, wow. And it added about 100 more screens, which is really incredible. Yeah, and they, I think A24 said they're going to keep playing it like through the summer. So for it to have that long of legs, I think, like you said, just keeps Michelle in the conversation and is definitely really, really promising. I, and she's like definitely out there. Like There's some viral video of her and Sandra Oh like dancing on stage that everyone's tweeting about. <laughs> yeah, it was at the uh, San Francisco International Film Festival. Yeah, yeah. So she's staying, you know, sort of present in people's minds too, which I think is a, a great start. Yeah, and as Coda reminds, a steady year-long campaign is not the worst thing for the Oscars necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the question is like, will the release of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness tear people away multiverse-wise <laughs> to another property? <laughs> Um, well, I don't know, is it the but... lesson of multiverses is that many can exist at the same time? And <laughs> uh, get a I suppose bright. that's true. Yeah. I'm not up to date on my multiverses. Yeah. My my Michelle Yeoh uh, anecdote is that my friend was at a gala for the East West Players, a really prominent uh, Asian American theater in Los Angeles. And Michelle Yeoh received kind of some kind of award that uh, was shaped like a butt plug, which if you've seen everything everywhere all at once, you know, is completely appropriate. And if you haven't, it might be very confusing. Um, but yeah, she's she's probably going to continue to be everywhere, which is, I think, a gift to all of us. Well, the other A24 update, um, which, Richard, you're going to come in for because uh, Alex Garland's Men, an upcoming A24 release, had kind of a, I guess not a premiere, but like a special event screening in New York over the weekend. Yeah, they um, held an event at the Alamo Draft House in uh, Brooklyn, which I assumed was just a kind of press screening. I guess I should have noted the Saturday night time and been like, I think this might be more than that. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, Michaela Cole was there and Ari Aster was there. Maggie Gyllenhaal was there to support Jesse Buckley, her, her, one of the stars of Lost Daughter. So it really was like rolling out. A, I think it was it felt at least I don't know what their strategy was behind the scenes. But to me, it felt like A24 just kicking the, the everything everywhere red carpet for, you know, <laughs> further down the way to, to kind of <laughs> get this one going too. It's it's not really comparable to everything everywhere in terms of content or style, but um, they're having a great spring, and so I think it's an interesting showing, kind of ahead of Can. I don't know if they have anything at Can, but like you know, ahead of like the the, the ramp up to festival announcements and all that, like A twenty four is really putting its its stamp on this season or this year really with these two movies. Yeah, and and Men is going to be at Can, so I feel like oh that's the, right, yes, they're okay, definitely going right. to have that presence. And I was at the. LA screening that happened at the same time as the New York screening, and they also had an Austin screening. So it felt sort of like a blanket uh, coverage sort of attempt to have those screenings all at the same time. Although, you know, we had to watch the panel like on the screen because it was in New York, but and they didn't give you any celebrities to make you feel no, included. No celebrities. The room was very dark. I tried to look, but I didn't see any <laughs> celebrities. You know, you did get the draft house like food service, which was nice, but. A24 knows how to sort of create word of mouth better than any other studio, in my opinion. So it does feel like they're trying to do that again. And I think their relationship, at least as I see it, again, with uh, Alamo Drafthouse, it makes 100% sense. The clientele for those theaters, at least the one in Brooklyn, like really syncs up with people who are interested in what A24 puts out. And I think that they're, you know, this smaller indie studio and this boutique, a little pricier movie, you know, theatrical experience, like those two things meld together. And they kind of, from my vantage point, it's like, here are these two entities supporting each other and kind of propping up, in some senses, the theatrical model and really investing in it from both sides, you know, Alamo Drafthouse trying to bring the art house crowds in and A24 really investing at least in a kind of partnership 
in that kind of theatrical experience. And I think, you know, maybe we'll see more of that going forward is, is other distributors really trying to foster a special kind of experience. And this was not the only kind of thing that they've done recently. There was a big fan event at the Alamo for Everything Everywhere, um, the, you know, the Thursday night that it opened. And so we keep seeing these things pop up. And I think it's it so far seems to have been a fruitful partnership. Well, it kind of reminds you that these kind of special events, like cool buzz-building movie events, haven't been all that possible for the last two years. Like thinking about Uncut Gems and the party that they had, Richard, you might have been there, where they had a party at like Katz's Deli in New York, and it was insanely crowded, and it was back in the fall of 2019. Um, so the Draft House and A24 kind of teaming up to be like, no, 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 no. Like being at the movies can be a cool in-person experience. Um, they're kind of the, the perfect people to do it. I did not go to that event because I was scared of who would be on the guest list. And I thought I'd be very intimidated and feel really uncool. So I stayed home and then just read tweets about it. Well, weren't you with me at the Toronto party for it where it was so loud that we left? Because that was that was like my most indelible old person moment where I was like, it's too loud. We have to go. And that's exactly what we did. The weekend may be here, but I am not. Um, Well, hopefully maybe we'll be cool enough this time around when um, movies and cool parties make a comeback. I want a cool party for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. You know, that's that, that's my speed, I think. <laughs> well, you're going to join the HFPA and they're going to send you to Paris uh, to for the junket for it, right? I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, if you're not cool, or if you are cool and just want to stay home, Television is everywhere, uh, everything everywhere all at once, truly. Um, and Rebecca, you you did a great piece last week uh, that was about Abbott Elementary, but I think in in more broad ways about network TV in general. And I, I feel like the kind of sub-story of it was how many executives wanted to go on the record on your piece and praise Abbott Elementary and how hmm. much of a victory lap they all seem to be taking. You you pitched this idea. You are, were really won over by the show, like a lot of people, I think. Um, so, Rebecca, is Abbott Elementary going to rescue broadcast comedy at the Emmys or anywhere? I don't know if it's going to rescue him. <laughs> a, a lot to put on his Big shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think I do think it has a strong chance uh, in comedy series and maybe writing or something else at the Emmys and definitely seems to be a part of the conversation. Obviously, the competition is super stiff this year. There's a lot of returning comedies that are all in the race at the same time. But I also just think it's a show that people are watching across generations and and, you know, some people are finding it on Hulu because it is available there, but it is an ABC show that airs on broadcast. So it's kind of proving this model works and 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 that is due to the sort of the quality of the show and the accessibility of it and and the charm of it. So it was definitely interesting to talk to everyone about how they pulled that off and, and getting behind this 
uh, Quinta Bronson, the creator, getting behind her her voice and and her vision on this. So I I feel like it really has a, a strong chance to be the the broadcast show that sort of breaks into the Emmys this year. I think it's going to get a lot of nominations. <laughs> it <laughs> feels like the show just builds every week and has such an incredible reputation and um, is so funny and I think um, representative of. <laughs> To Kate, to Kate, to your point, Katie, a lot of where the mood shifts are happening in television right now. Mm. In prep for this podcast over the weekend, I watched a little bit of Ghosts, which has had this sort of incredible viewership maintaining slash rise on CBS, which is pretty pretty unheard of for broadcast comedy, right along with Abbott Elementary. Um, and also American Auto on NBC, which was created by the creator of Superstore and stars Anna Gasteyer. And they're all like smart and funny. And I mean, I don't think that they rise to the level of Abbott Elementary necessarily, but um, these shows that maybe aren't getting talked about as much, even as the viewership is pretty decent for where network is nowadays. But there is a bit of a creative boon happening here that maybe even more so than is being talked about. And I, th- I thought of that in the in contrast to Netflix as part of its wave of cancellations and scaling backs this past week. It canceled the show Pretty Smart, which I'm sure you've never heard of. No. Uh, it starred Emily Osmond, and it was one example of their attempt to kind of laugh track their way <laughs> to networky status. Oh, it um, had an actual laugh track? It had a laugh track. It wow. has a really traditional multi-camera setup. It is particularly unfunny. I think it just ran for one season, but it's one of those shows that you've never heard of. It came and went, but it, it represented those bizarre ambitions uh, of Netflix, I think, to adopt some networky qualities. And I just thought of that in contrast to what actual networks are doing right now, which is trying to innovate and, and become a little bit better and smarter. And those three shows that I mentioned do that, uh, Abbott Elementary most of all, but um, it's it does feel like there's a bit of a even beyond executives, just maybe a little bit of a cheering moment going on for the part of the industry that once upon a time did not need any cheering whatsoever. Yeah. Our colleague Joy Press wrote an article kind of about this for us called The Netflix Nightmare, What Happens When an Industry Becomes a Squid Game? And in there is a funny anecdote from, I guess, the CEO of CBS, a guy named George Cheeks, which is a great name. Um, And he was talking to his teenage nephew, who said he really liked this comedy ghost. It was his favorite new show. Yeah. And Cheeks said, uh, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, on CBS where I work. And the nephew said, like, what's CBS? <laughs> you know, he <laughs> thought it was just like a Hulu show or something. So there, I think there's a branding issue there. But like, whatever. I mean, people are clearly tuning in to watch those shows on traditional, you know, I guess it's linear broadcasting. So, yeah, it's an interesting sort of identity moment for for those networks. But, hey, they have two hits. So, yeah. You also look at the ongoing relevance of something like Survivor. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in that article uh, that Joy wrote, which is so great and everyone should read it if they haven't. An executive notes that the average age of a viewer on CBS, where the ratings are pretty stable, is I think in in their sixties, and on Paramount Plus, it's in their thirties. So it's almost double. It's doubled. <laughs> that <was> so crazy. <laughs> um, but it just shows like there is an adapting happening. But there they're are... watching the same stuff, you know. Yeah, exactly. We, we, that's the kind of funny thing about it. It's it's not really the same as like the theatrical business model, but you think about like releasing the Batman in theaters and then putting it on HBO Max and you get two bites at the apple basically. And on some level, broadcasts are doing the same thing. And if you make a show like Abbott Elementary that people in their 60s and people in their 30s will watch, all, all the better for it. And those it's not impossible to make a show like that, which is I think maybe sometimes we tricked ourselves into thinking that the audience was so divided everything had to be niche, but that's not really true. 
Yeah, and I love what Quinta Brunson, the writer, star, creator, told Rebecca about making a show that's for the family to watch for a variety of age groups. And it is something that's unique about network and that's exactly reflected in those kinds of numbers. And to your point, Katie, that everyone is watching this stuff and that is a unique pull of, of that format. I think the show has also, uh, Abbott Elementary, that it has the thrill of the new. I mean, Quinta Brunson is not new to people who watched BuzzFeed Video or uh, Black Lady Sketch Show, but for a lot of people, Quinta, this is her kind of coming out ball. So it has that aspect to it, which is great, but it also has Cheryl Lee Ralph, who is a lauded performer who's been on stage and, you know, TV film for many, many years, Tony nominated for Dreamgirls. And and I think that that her narrative, she's been a very, very, very like active booster for the show. She's really proud of it. She said in interviews, it's like the best thing she's ever done. So they could give her the awards. You get the, the veteran, the thing, and you also welcome in the new people. And it just, it all kind of ties together very well. Yeah, I think Janelle James is a person that a lot of people sort of consider breakout on the show. She plays the principal. And and Channing Dundee was actually telling me that she just reached out to Quinta over social media and was like, I have to be in the show. And they kind of wrote the role around her. So you can kind of feel those sort of um, like personal touches that have been made with this cast. They're all really strong. It's just a really enjoyable watch if if you haven't checked it out yet. I was also thinking about this in the context of um, Netflix losing Shit's Creek and not to like have Netflix be the weekly punching bag, although it feels like that in the media sometimes. Um, but, you know, they had the rights like Netflix really was the factor that made Shit's Creek such a huge hit. And now it'll be on Hulu. And on some level, you know, most people have watched that show and it was really expensive to renew. Um, but Shit's Creek was just a network comedy. And so is Ted Lasso, really. Like, these shows that have won the last two primetime comedy Emmys um, are so baked in the same model of network sitcom that's like pretty much been around since Norman Lear in the 70s. And it feels like these networks are being like, wait, 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 we did this better than anybody. We can still do it better than anybody. Like, take that apple. And they're succeeding at it. And comedy's hard. And Schitt's Creek is such a good example of a show that took years to not only find itself creatively, but find an audience. And Mm -hmm. it had the kind of model. It was not a Netflix show. Um, It found its audience through Netflix, but it was able to develop years over years on pop with room to grow that... Netflix has often infamously not afforded a lot of its comedies particularly. So um, especially as Grace and Frankie wraps its uh, historic run on Netflix, you're reminded of the power of long runs. And that's something Netflix has not afforded a lot of its shows. And that's where a lot of great comedies have found their voice is through Mm -hmm. that room. I think it's also interesting. I mean, we've, we've probably covered this territory pretty well in talking about Ted Lasso in Emmy seasons past, but like, Ghosts is about dead people, but it's not a depressing show. Avid Elementary is about like being in a public school and and the hardship of that, but it's not at all depressing. It's a very optimistic kind of series. Ted Lasso obviously is. And you have niche hits like Barry, which are really dark and funny. Hacks, I would even argue, is kind of filled with pathos and a kind of melancholy. Um, I was going to throw in Russian Doll too. Russian Doll, sure, and like, but yeah. but but there is clearly an appetite for comedies that just kind of make you chuckle and smile, and you don't end the half hour feeling despondent about anything really. And I think there's probably something psychologically to be drawn from that. Well, uh, Richard, weren't you the primary viewer of Netflix, The Ranch, for a long time there? You were you were early to the The Ranch track. was a fascinating show. Also had a live studio audience, um, but that was more sort of American Playhouse teleplay kind of thing. It was very. It, it felt like it was beamed in from the 70s and Sam Shepard was somehow involved. And, you know, it was, it was an, and then it kind of devolved. And then the p- various things about a certain cast member kind of came out, not Sam Elliott. Uh, and um, I, I lost my interest in it. But for a while there, it was one of the most fascinating things on television. And if you want, I've written about it extensively at VF, so people can seek that work out. 
Well, I got a press release that they're doing that 90s show um, with parents from that 70s show and cameos from various people, probably including Ashton Kutcher. So the, the grand tradition of The Ranch may be continuing at Netflix, even as everything else changes. Or Fuller House. Or Fuller House. Is that, <laughs> is that still on? No, 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 no. I mean, I guess they told me to stop making it, and I, I eventually <laughs> You agreed. got your cash, and you walked away. Yeah. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, well, to talk about something truly incredibly different from Abbott Elementary in every possible way, I cannot think of a possible overlap. Um, but this week brings the premiere of The Staircase, which I think is probably one of the splashier HBO shows they have this spring. It's certainly one of the latest premiering. Um, and in Emmy season, often, if you're premiering in May, that means that your um, network or studio or whatever has a lot of high hopes for it. Um, and David, you wrote kind of a big preview piece digging into the really long history of this, not just that it's based on a French documentary that first came out in 2004, but uh, for Antonio Campos, who's one of the showrunners. Um, so d- did that all give you the sense that there's a lot writing on The Staircase? Yeah, this is a this is a career long passion project for Antonio Campos, who created the show and directs six of the eight episodes. He's actually in the documentary, which uh, is credited um, rightly with inspiring a lot of the ongoing current true crime boom in modern TV. Uh, it's a French documentary, as you say. Um, and he's in later episodes. You can spot him in the courtroom because he was so fascinated by the case. He was in Durham where this all took place. And he was interviewing the filmmakers, interviewing participants. And he brought brings a lot of his own research to the show, which feels like a kind of meditation on this ongoing true crime craze. It feels like a not necessarily a corrective, but an answer to it or an attempted answer to it um, to look at a little bit deeper, look a little bit deeply into our fascination with the genre and why it is so captivating to us. This particular show takes a really tricky thing in that we don't know what happened to Kathleen Peterson. Nobody knows what happened. Incredibly bizarre things came out in the trial of Michael Peterson, who's played by Colin Firth, that could either lead you to believe he's surely guilty or surely not. But the show, I think, really leans into that unknowability and, and Campos and co-showrunner Maggie Cohn uh, have a lot of fun with that and have, do a lot of experimenting and trying to build a drama around something where you don't know what happened. Is that the the meta aspect that you're talking about? Like, are they kind of looking at our obsession with, like, finding out the real killer and saying it's not that simple? Partly, and then there's also the element of the documentary is in the show. So you have this extra layer of watching... Uh, a true crime documentary being made in real time or a depiction of, of a true, true crime documentary. Um, and, and I think that's one of the strongest aspects of the show is when Campos and Cohn really get into the nitty gritty of eliciting an emotional response out of a viewer or how to manipulate a certain scene. I'm not in a particularly necessarily an ethical way, but, you know, in, in conventions of storytelling and how every story is shaped and managed and molded to be at its most palatable and interesting. And that 
extra layer of storytelling to the show complicates what you're watching because there are multiple layers of subjectivity through which the story is being told. Richard, you're reviewing The Staircase for us, right? Yeah. You want to give us a preview? (laughs) I was telling David and Rebecca before we started recording that I had really bad staircase nightmares last night. (laughs) Oh, God. Campos, a few years ago, made a really fascinating little scene film called Christine about the TV news broadcaster Christine Chubbuck, who shot herself, killed herself on air in Florida in the 1970s. Um, And it's a really hard sit. But it's a fascinating psychological portrait anchored by a great performance by Rebecca Hall. And I, and I, I just kept thinking about that movie when I was watching this. Obviously, it's directed by the same person. But it, this show has a similar, very clear-eyed, sober, unsensational, but fascinated and kind of their look, you know, a sort of approach to this grim, grim material. And, and this kind of big question mark. There's always the question mark of why Christine Chubbuck did what she did. There's the question mark of what happened to Kathleen on the staircase. And that makes for, I think, technically admirable work. I mean, the, the the staircase is really well built and really well acted, but I am having a really hard time getting through the screeners. I think there is one scene in particular that I think I'm going to sort of lead my review with, which is it depicts what might have happened if Kathleen's death was, in fact, an, a slip and fall accident in the titular staircase. And that is one of the most brutal five minutes of television I've seen maybe ever just because it's such a quotidian, oops, I tripped on my flip-flop, and then it leads to this horrible thing. (laughs) And I don't really know that I want to sit in that headspace (laughs) at all. But um, So I don't know really how HBO Max is going to pitch this show i mean they're obviously it's it's a sensational true crime and that will get enough people in but but then when you actually sit and watch the show and and to weirdly campos's credit it is a very very unnerving series not just for that scene but just the way that it it does not give you any answers it does not give you the comfort of a hero it it just places you in the unknowability of humanity and i think that is fascinating but at the same time kind of repellent in a way Mm. is it the kind of thing where if it was a movie and you only had two hours to sit in it, it might be better. Yeah, maybe. But but I think that wouldn't have accomplished what I think he's trying to accomplish, which is to really have you marinate in the question of, do we ever really know anybody? You know, Or do mm-hmm. we ever really know like what the whims of the universe and chaos are doing? And I, I think in a movie, you could have told the story of the trial and the documentary and the accident or the murder, but you wouldn't get all the other, other added thematic stuff that, that's happening. I'm having a similar experience to Richard with this series, and I was also watching it late last night, but it's just impossible not to sort of compare it to the other many, many crime based on a true story TV series that are are coming out. And I think because a lot of these are dealing with real people, I feel like you, you have a responsibility in the choices you make and how you tell these stories. And, you know, with Under the Banner of Heaven, I felt like the choices they made about how they showed the murder worked well for that story. And I just feel like I'm ex- I'm not, not that enjoying is not the right word, but I'm not able to even absorb this experience when I'm watching Staircase because of the choices they've made to sh- the way they show it. And maybe I'm just like too full of seeing mostly white women be killed on, on, on shows right now. But um, there's so many of them. There's just there's just too many. And, and and again, that could be just because a lot of us are having to watch these all in a row. But yeah, I'm, I'm having a difficult experience. And, and that's not to, I mean, the performances are, are very, very good in this series. But yeah, I've, had, I've struggled with the way the story's told as well. Well, watching that staircase sequence, you're just like, why 
is right. this, why are we being shown this? And why did Tony Collette want to do this? And why, you know, and I think that David, what you've talked to Campos about, like, that does answer some of my question, which mm-hmm. is like, he's fascinated by this. And I wonder if in a way his fascination not got the better of him, because I think he's accomplishing what he wanted to, but like, it's hard to be like, to be led into that experience. It's like, I'm just kind of standing on the outside of this single visions, like, obsession with this one case. And I'm like, what are my access points? And why am I being shown these horrible things? And I don't know, maybe I'm being too sensitive, but it's it's a it's a puzzler. And, and maybe that's deliberate. It's a really complicated question. I mean, I interviewed him and, and both Colin Firth and Tony Collette uh, and Maggie Cohn after only seeing one episode. Um, and, and we do break in the story. So it's not a huge spoiler to say that there are various reenactments of theories as to how Kathleen died. And that's kind of a core component of the series. And they wrestled a lot with how to do something like that in a way that didn't feel sensationalistic or offensive, not to judge whether or not they achieved that. But I do find it fascinating the way you have this show, Candy, which is coming up on Hulu, which also hinges on, we know who is involved in that murder pretty directly, but we don't know exactly how it happened, a similar kind of situation. Uh, And then something like Under the Banner of Heaven, where we know really all of the the beats of that murderer you can if you you do, do some research on it. Um, and each of those three shows takes very different approaches to how to depict it. And perhaps you compare this to the banner of he- under the banner of heaven and yeah, it's it's basically opposite where in in that pilot episode of the that FX Hulu series, they don't even show it. It's it's very sensitively, um, carefully handled. And in this one, there is an attempt, I think, to lean into a cultural fascination with gruesome death and murder. And how well they achieve that does not necessarily translate to how palatable that's going to be. And, and maybe it's like a funny games kind of thing in that way. Mm-hmm, it's like, oh, you, you want to know about this stuff? Well, here it is, you know, yeah. and, and this is exactly or at least as close of an approximation of what could have happened as we can create in the world of fiction. And, uh, in, you know, enjoy. <laughs> and and I think that maybe that's something what I'm, that I'm wrestling with is like, I have never been that invested in the true crime thing, but I've been plenty invested in it. And but because I'm sort of I can sit or listen at that remove of like, it's it's storytelling, whatever. And and Campos is like kind of rubbing our noses in in a way, not in a smug way. But so, yeah, maybe maybe that's my reaction to it is the show succeeding. And I do think, Richard, you make a really interesting point about the level of immersion he has in this case and whether that perhaps overtook the series a little bit. You know, I was modestly interested in the case before I started reporting on the show. But when I started getting into it to write this story, the Reddit for the Staircase, the Netflix series, is wild and still extremely active. And the, you know, obsession over this case is really enduring. And I'm sure he's very aware of that. I'm sure he's very enmeshed in that. And I think that that also is reflected in the tone and intensity of the series is exactly that, a kind of answer for that. I mean, it does seem fair to ask, you know, 10 years plus after the premiere of Game of Thrones and well into the true crime boom, like, is it not time, high time for a show, especially on HBO, the home of gory violence on television to be like, why, why are we doing this? It, it, it seems like the time is right, even if it's not maybe the messenger for this message. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's difficult, but I think that that's okay. This stuff should be harder. You know, <laughs> you know, um, you th- you'd look to something like 
Pam or what was that show with Renee Zellweger? Um, the thing about, about Pam. Pam. Yeah, which is about a murder, and but it's very candy colored, sort of cute, and and it's Fargo esque, and 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 I think that going back to Serial, where people halfway through the run of that first season were like, wait, but a teenager was murdered. What are we? Why are we making Crab Shack jokes? You know, like, <laughs> um, and this one leaves. I mean, there's there are moments of humor. Parker Posey plays. The, one of the prosecuting attorneys um, and she's using her Mississippi roots to, or I think Louisiana rather, um, to, you know, she's doing a, a fun accent and she's she's quoting other people, but she says some kind of like naughty things. and But then you look <laughs> and into who that prosecutor was in real life and she had a horribly tragic end to her life. And like, it, like th- the show does not give you really any room to make light of anything, basically. Uh, I will, I've only watched one episode of The Staircase, but I do live in Durham, North Carolina, where the murder happened. And I will, none, none of the show looks like it was actually filmed here, which it wasn't, but the accents are mostly pretty good. Uh, mm. And Colin Firth and Tony Collette aren't trying Southern accents, which I think is the key. <laughs> Katie, please, no flip-flops in the house. Please, 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 please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you, I, I don't, you need to tell me what episode that happens in, because I might just need to fast-forward through with that sequence. <laughs> I, believe I, it's episode, I believe it's episode two, two and I yeah. was like, oh, they're going to show it everything up to the point, and then I was like, oh, no, they're going to oh. keep going, and I was, I, I was like gasping in my living room alone in the middle of the day. <laughs> like, it was oh. unpleasant. Well, may I recommend Abbott Elementary to, uh, yeah. to cleanse your palate? <laughs> I think I watched some like cooking videos immediately after. <laughs> I just needed to. Uh, well, that does it for this week's show. We'll have more television and more murder to talk about next week because that is the season that we are in. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find Richard's review of The Staircase, Rebecca's piece on Abbott Elementary, David's preview piece on The Staircase, um, lots of other stuff. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm Katie Rich and Richard. At put carpeting on your stairs, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and David. David Campbell, 97. <laughs> and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7118. We're even answering questions about, say, how non-binary actors might submit at the Emmys. So get in touch. You never know uh, if we might be able to answer your question. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the most accurate description of what we're all saying in therapy these days goes to Katie Rich. Not up to date on my multiverses. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 